We're in 1 Samuel tonight, if you have a copy of the scriptures, will you? And we're in number 7. 1 Samuel chapter number 7 in God's Word. We'll begin here in a moment in verse number 1. A young man in a meeting a while back, he's a student, a seminary student, and uh, he wanted to know if he could ask me some questions. And in the course of the questions, one of them was this. He said, Preacher, what is the, the burden of your heart? What is the, he put, what is the, the goal? What is your ambition? What would you say would be the, his word was the driving force in your ministry? I come to that, that subject tonight. First Samuel chapter number seven. I have written across the, the top of the page of this copy of the scripture that I'm attempting to break in. And to remind me that chapter 7 is a study of revival. One of the outstanding revivals in all of the scripture. I was thinking about it this afternoon. It's been over 27 years. I had the opportunity of becoming the pastor of a church in the southwest part of Indianapolis where I live now. And... uh, It was my second time there as pastor, at least in the the group that I went back to and then having been there a few weeks or a few months, we felt the Lord directing us to become a part of another church and put the two churches together. And uh, we took the facilities of the second group and changed the name. I went back to the church that I'd had the privilege of being with a small group that we'd started the church some 12 years prior to this time that I'm talking about. And so we took the name of the second group and uh, not only assumed the facilities, but There were so many, many burdens and problems and such an overwhelming sense of need. Having been there with the two groups for all the first few weeks, uh, God brought my attention to study the subject of revival. The revivals of the scriptures. God was gracious to those dear people, to us there. I went there in 1975. I left there January of 81. I was there with them about five years. I went back over it a little this afternoon. I talked to someone by phone in that area today. They made reference to the blessings of God in that time frame. I was with a preacher last week. He pastors near Birmingham now. He served on the staff with me. He was associate preacher. We reminisced last week. His wife said to me, she calls me pastor. She said, pastor, 
She referred to her husband. She said, sometimes we just talk about those years. Said it's like a dream. Some of the things that God did for those people, for us when we were there, she said. Then he said probably the message that God used to zero in when he really broke in is the word he used. He said you were asking us to try to incorporate the truths of 1 Samuel 7. The divine intervention, the spiritual awakening that happened under Samuel the prophet. What is revival? Preachers already mentioned that uh, we're to ask God, we're to allow God. We're to anticipate God doing it for us. What, what is revival? One that I have great respect for and his insight, in my opinion, he's probably one of the greatest revivalists that I know anything about. He's on up in years now. When he was asked that question, his response was this. He said, revival is a person, place, or a community saturated with the presence of God. It's God coming on the scene. It's God showing up. It's God being in control. Old timers were right when they called it divine intervention. Spiritual awakening. I think sometimes we confuse revival and evangelism. Sometimes we make reference to revival, but what we really mean, we're talking about evangelism. And I think the Bible makes a distinction. Revival is a work that God does for the church. Evangelism is a work the church is to be doing for God. And we, we, I don't think we ever do effective evangelism unless first God is doing a work of revival in our midst, in our hearts, in our lives. That's my understanding of biblical revival. It's not trying to psych someone up and put him on a guilt trip and sort of make him feel guilt if he doesn't go out and do the work. I, I, I think it's just the result when revival is taking place, it motivates us, it moves us out. It lets us effectively share the gospel then. So what is revival? In the seventh chapter, the book of 1 Samuel, we begin reading in verse 1. The Bible said, The men of Kirjath Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab and the hill and sanctified Eliezer's son to keep the ark of the Lord. It came to pass, while the ark abode in Kirjath Jerim, that the time was long. It was 20 years. And all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all of your hearts, then put away the strange gods and astral from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he'll deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and astral, and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I'll pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel and when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, 
Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he'll save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came unto Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more to the coast of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even unto Gath, and the coast thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel in all of those places. His return was to Ramah, for there was his house, and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. God did something so wonderful for him in that day that, as it were, Samuel said, let's not forget what God did for us. In verse 12, the text says that he took a stone and placed it there between Mizpah and Shin, and he called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. I preached at a place some time ago. I noticed when I pulled up in front of the new auditorium, there was a beautiful stone. They had in bold letters, Ebenezer. I commented about it, and the dear pastor said, Brother Hurt, we wanted to do that in memory. We wanted to just commemorate and let God and then let the community know that we are aware hitherto up to here. God has brought us. God has helped us. That church too has seen revival. He said, we don't want to forget. God did this for us. I recall saying to our people as I ask them on a Sunday evening, to think with us as we begin to look at this event at this uh, revival of history, at this divine intervention, spiritual awakening, whatever term you want to use. And, and I recall saying to him, as I suggest to this audience tonight, that there's four movements in this chapter. This revival, this move of God, this spiritual awakening, this when God so wonderfully came through for his people, it was preceded by lamentation. Look at verse number two. The Bible said the time was long. It's 20 years. Referring back to when they had lost the presence of God. Referring back to when the ark was taken from them. Referring back to when the reference was made, Inkabod, the glory has departed. No more glory, no more presence of God, no more Shekinah cloud, if you please. And it's been 20 long years 
this text says. Not just 20 years, but the emphasis on 20 long years. See, if you've known what it's like to have the presence of God in your life, and then you walk with God and in your church, and then you lose the presence of God, indeed, you want to put emphasis upon, oh, how long it is to walk without Him. And so here, the text says, it was 20 long years that the ark has been up there in a place called Kerjeth-Jerium. We could translate that and it wouldn't do injury to it. It could be translated and referred to as a place called Hillville. It's in that small community way back in a back way place. It says in the house of Abinadab in the hill, verse 1. And so there's where the ark and the symbol of God's presence for this long time. And there's been no central worship in the land of Israel for the people of God for 20 years. But now he returns. Now he comes on the scene. Now he breaks through, if you please. Now there's that intervention. Now God again has come back to the people of God. But I suggest to you that this divine intervention, this spiritual awakening, it was preceded. That which went before it was what I call lamentation. Oh, the people of God. Look at verse 2. He said, and all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. I've never read of a revival that was not preceded by this that verse 2 brings into focus. Never known of a real revival that was not preceded by brokenness and sorrow over our sins and our failures and then a seeking after the Lord. I'm told by those that helped me to understand the scripture, this is a rather unusual word, and that word lamented there, it, it, it's a verb with two sides, one side of it would, would not sufficiently describe what he's talking about. To lament means, of course, to express sorrow, but this verb has those two sides, not only is it a verb talking about expressing sorrow, it's weeping, but it's also seeking. I mean, notice, you, you see it there without even digging into the word study. Not only does it say the house of Israel lamented, but they are lamented after the Lord. And I wonder tonight, are we disturbed over our loss? Does it bother us that we haven't had the presence of God in our walk, in our, in our life? Does it bother us that we become stale and dry and cold and, and it's not like it used to be? Does it bother us that Inkabod's written over the lives of some of us and over the churches of where some of us attend? There's no glory, there's no reality, there's no presence of God. You see, this lamenting here, it's expressing a deep felt need in the heart of these people of God. And that need is rooted in two realities. And reality number one is in the choices they've made. They put something in the place of God. And for way back there, 20 years ago, they began to leave God out. They began to put the gods of the nations around them. They began to let those idols of those pagans take Jehovah's place. And expecting some fulfillment. But they're so disappointed. Those idol gods had promised them, but of course an idol can't fulfill. And now they're lamenting after God. They're weeping over their poor choice. Something took God's place. 
And I tell you, when God needs to come back to us, it presupposes for me to say, I need revival. I mean, it presupposes I'm away. I've gotten away from Him. I need to return. And we say, oh God, revive. These people on the pages of the Scripture goes back about 30, what, 31, nearly 3,200 years ago. And as I commented yesterday, preaching out of the Old Testament, I said things is written aforetime, Paul tells us, is for our admonition, more up to date would say for our instruction. God said, I'd like to teach you. I want you to learn from this. And so tonight on the pages of this book, God said, let me tell you how you can have a memorial service and put up a stone, as it were, so that you won't forget. Right there's where God came through. Right there's where God did something. There's where God intervened in my life. But it always, I suggest to you, is preceded by lamentation. Weeping. Weeping over our failures. But not only was this hard felt expression in their lamenting, was it rooted in their poor choice of putting something in the place of God. But they are recalling what it's like. See, these people, they knew what it was like. They'd seen God. Oh, in their brief history, Israel hadn't been a nation too many years. What, just a little over 300 years at this time. And they've seen God over at Shiloh, over where the tent was, the presence of God. They knew about that. And so they now, they're seeking that reality again. Not only are they weeping over getting away and putting something in God's place, but they're saying, oh, we knew what it was like, the presence, the glory. It hasn't always been Ichabod. We know what it was like. And oh God, oh, we need you again. See, Samuel, we would call him a circuit preacher. Samuel's a traveling preacher. And Samuel, through these years, he's been moving around the people of God. And Samuel's been telling them, listen, you don't have to be defeated all the time. You don't have to be under bondage of these pagans all the time. Our God's able. And he stirred something. And by this time, all of Israel, every one of them's disturbed. And they're weeping and seeking now. And that'll get God's attention. You and I start sincerely weeping over our failures, quit covering them up, quit excusing, come clean with God and say, Lord, this is who I am, this is where I've been, this is what I've been doing. We start coming clean with God inside where only God knows us. David would say after covering his sin for a long time, thou desirest truth in the inward part where nobody knows but God in me. David said, you're looking for reality and truth in there, God. And when we come to that place that we want God again, we want His glory again, we want His presence again, that'll get God's attention. And so this divine intervention, this spiritual awakening, it was preceded by lamentation. Oh, back there when, what was it, they lost about 400 men at a place called Ebenezer back in chapter 4. And then they ran and got the Ark of the Covenant. And just thinking, almost looking up on it as magic and just thinking somehow, if we can just bring that out here, though they're not right with God, they're just going through the ritual and routine. And then they lose 30,000 men. 
Plus, they lose that iron. And when the priest, the aged priest hears about it, he falls backward off of a bench, breaks his neck, and dies. And when Phinehas, his wife, one of the sons of that priest, Hophni and Phinehas, both was killed in the battle. And when Phinehas, his wife, hears, she, she goes into labor and gives birth to a son and names him before she dies. In Kabbalah, the glory is gone. It didn't seem to disturb her as much about the death of her husband and the death of the, uh, of the priest, her, her father-in-law. What really seemed to disturb her, they've got the ark. God's presence is gone. Just call it Ichabod. Oh, listen, I don't speak with unkindness. I don't do that. But I do try to speak with reality. There are churches that goes through the motion of church, doing church all over the country. And I tell you, Ichabod's written all over the place. No glory, no reality, just a form, just cut and dried. And yet the sadder thing is, we don't seem to be disturbed about it. It doesn't seem to bother us. Just business as usual. And the Lord said, one of the things you can expect in the church world in the last days of this age is that they were doing church and over at Laodicea and the Lord wasn't even in there. He's on the outside. And he's knocking. Well, we use that as an invitation for a sinner to let him in. And I think it can be appropriately used, but that's not basically what he was talking about. He's talking to a church. He said, I, if anyone in that church will hear my voice and let me in. But yet that church was going through the motion of doing church and even boasting about they increased with goods and have need of nothing. Oh, they were needy, but they were ignorant of it. They wasn't aware. He said, thou knowest not. You're wretched and blind and miserable and poor before God. And yet, could it be that's where we're at tonight in the church world? No glory. No reality. God's gone. Is this book, is it just black print on white paper? Or does this book, is it a lie? Did this book say something in your quiet time this morning? Was God with you there when you spoke with Him this morning, worshipped Him in your quiet time? Was you just preaching at, or praying at God somewhere? Or was you speaking with God? Was the reality of God there? Oh, revival is a person, a place, or a community saturated with the presence of God. He's the last one you're aware of when you go to sleep at night. And when you wake in the morning, He's more real to you than the very flesh and bones of your body. He's there when you wake up. Spirit of God's real. But oh, listen. If we put something in God's place, they turn to idols in that day. Almost hear someone say, Brother Hurt, you're preaching the wrong audience. There's not an idol in the bunch tonight. <laughs> well, perhaps not. We don't bow down to little grotesque statues. And they, Dagon was the principal idol of that day. And I tell you, though God would not defend Israel because Israel wasn't standing for the honor of God, but when they took God's presence over in the pagan country, He defended His own honor over there. They even took, and they thought he's on the same level maybe of their God. And they took that ark and placed it over there where they're supposed that God was there. And the next morning, old day God, that was their lead God, he, he'd fall over on his face. Now, they hardly got the message, but they propped him back up. Wouldn't that be something to have to go around propping your God up? They propped him up. And God said, well, they didn't get the message. And the next morning they went in there, 
Not only had he fallen over, his, his head was broken off and his arms is gone. They got the message. Someone said, one old boy looked in there and he said, they go. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> He's gone all right. Amen. Yeah. I mean, God was saying there's no wisdom in those idols. Their heads broke off. There's no help in those idols. Their arms are broke off. And yet, oh, they didn't get God back until they expressed their sorrow for getting away from Him and putting something in His place. Did it bother us tonight or do we rationalize and excuse and alibi? Look around other religious people and feel like, you know, since others are doing something, we, 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 we can do it. See, I'm talking about tonight having a heart for God, wanting God to come, wanted, wanting the glory to be upon us all the time. I suggested four things to our people then. Ask our people. As a dear preacher I was just with in Alabama, one of the dearest friends I've ever had. He's one of the Christ, most Christ-like people. I said to him, he's one of the most committed servants of God I've ever known. Oh, you could set your clock by me, meet God two hours every morning. Still does it all the time. Gave God those two first hours every day in the Word of God. And when you was around Him, you're just in the presence of somebody. You just knew He's walking in touch with God. And He said to me, Brother Hurd, I think it's when they placed that stone up there and said, let us not forget it. That's when God, His Word was this. That's when God broke in on us in a new way. Many of our people put those things in practice. I said it was preceded by lamentation. That's the key. That's the basis. Then not only is this this spiritual awakening preceded by lamentation, it's always accompanied by consecration. Confession, consecration, dedication. Hey, that's the first thing when they begin to cry to the Lord. And Samuel, in verse 3, began to speak to him. He said, if you do return to the Lord, notice, with all your heart, you want to be consecrated. You want, as our brother sang a moment ago, you want to give him full sway. You want to just give up and say, Lord, not I, you be Lord. He said, all right, the thing to do is put away from you those strange gods, those things. See, in this age, I, I repeat, perhaps not little grotesque, ugly idols. Bible talks about covetousness, listen, covetousness, which is idolatry. You think about that. Well, that's probably in the top of the list of the, of the top three gods of America tonight. If not number one, I think it'd be in the top three. I, I, I don't suggest that it is number one. There's another I think would be number one in, in American culture today. But materialism would have to be, I think, in the top three. And uh, it's it's... Taking God's place in all of our lives. And some of us can feel almost justified as if, you know, we're just pursuing the American dream. And there's nothing wrong with that. Thank God for America. And thank God for opportunity. Don't read something I'm not saying. It is God who giveth man ability to get wealth. And I know some Christians that God wonderfully is blessed in that realm. But when the blessing takes the place of the blesser, we're in trouble. We begin to lose his smile. And that becomes an idol. That becomes that thing that takes the place of God. And we need to start weeping over it and break loose from it. And say, oh God, not only is this spiritual awakening, this divine intervention preceded by what I call lamentation, it's accompanied 
by consecration involves that dedication and confession. But it's all, it always involves what I'm calling tonight supplication. You never ever read about a divine intervention anywhere without someone paying a price in prayer. I mean, it's prayer that reaches up to God, and it's prayer that God responds to when He comes on the scene. I've never read a revival in history. I have books. I don't brag about it. I have scores of books on this subject. I try to glean on this subject. That's my heartbeat. That's my burden. That's why I'm away from home around over the country and have been through these years trying to talk to us about revival and what it is that brings God on the scene. And I repeat, I have never read in biblical history, secular history, church history, uh, currently, I've never read, never heard of a genuine revival unless that it's always there is involved supplication, prayer, crying to God, begging God, if you please, pleading with God, persistence in prayer, staying with God till the revival comes. I said to our people, and I close with this, it was preceded by lamentation. It was accompanied by consecration. It involved supplication. But it was followed. It was. It resulted in what I'm calling tonight restoration. Realization, yes, God came. But even down in verse number 14, after he came on the scene in such a marvelous, such a mysterious way. Oh, it was a merciful way. They didn't deserve this. Not only merciful and marvelous and even mysterious. Who'd ever dreamed that God would have done it like he did? He thundered and scared that crowd, discomforted that crowd, defeated that crowd. Oh, but he came in such a manifold way. His help was, su- was such adequate help. And they wanted to put up that stone to say, Hitherto, up to this point, up to right here, hath the Lord helped uh, and down in verse 14, in that restoration, even talks about some of the cities. Some of the cities they'd lost to these pagans. The world had taken something that belonged to God's people. And he says they was restored. Respect of God, the resources that God had formed. They, oh, there's so many things comes in restoration. The joy of the Lord's our strength. I read from a revivalist yesterday. You know what he said about revival? He says, revival is always accompanied with a song. <laughs> I like that. You go around people that's in revival, and they'll be a singing people. Oh, they'll just be expressing their heart in song and praise to him. God's ancient people were noted for their singing. But once while there's away from him over yonder in pagan land, captivity, one of those pagans said, we've heard about you. Sing us one of the songs. And they said, we cannot sing. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? You out of tune touch tonight, one of the ways you'll tell in a hurry, you lose your song. You lose your joy. The, the joy of the Lord is your strength. But oh, in that restoration of divine intervention, he begins to put back that which the devil and the flesh and the world gets from us. Your influence, your power with God, your power with people, the, the enjoyment of serving God, your heart being filled to your heart's content. In His presence is fullness of joy. And revival is God coming on the scene and just filling you with joy. But that's the result of it. 
Don't let me throw you a curve. I hear people say sometimes, and I think they've got it backwards. I heard a person just not long ago. He said, now, if we can just get people to, he said, if we can just get them to rejoice in enough, just get them to rejoice and that'll bring revival. I disagree with that. Rejoicing is not the route to revival. It's the result. Repentance is the route. He said, will thou not revive thy people that we may rejoice in thee? Not a matter of trying to work up something and get people, if they rejoice enough, maybe God will come. I, I think that's carnal. I think that's the work of the flesh. And God, His presence leaves when the flesh is on parade. Because God says no flesh will glory in His presence. He moves His presence when we begin to show off. No, it's not rejoicing is the route to revival. It's repentance. And when we repent in brokenness and confession and say, oh God, I've sinned. When you have revival, restoration of your joy comes back then. And then the joy of the Lord is your strength. And you'll have some influence and I'll have influence. I can touch people for His glory. But that'll happen after He returns to me. Oh, I said to him, can I say it without being boastful? I said to him over there before leaving the motel room, I said, Lord, Lord, I want to live. I want to see you come for us. I want to see you take over in our life. Be Lord. Oh, entirely, completely. Work in and then through us. Are you hungry for it tonight? Oh, is there that lamentation, that weeping and then that seeking? That weeping over the thing that got in his place and then seeking again for the glory that we have known. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. God's people in the moment of quietness as we quieten our hearts before Him. God's in this place tonight. Spirit of God's here. He's here in a, in, in a real way this evening. Yesterday, I, I said to my wife when, last night after the meeting was over, she said, how was the meeting today? I said, wonderful. And God broke my heart when I was telling her about it. She said, really? I wish I could have been there. I said, honey, you wouldn't believe the reality. The touch of God in this place yesterday. Oh, church, don't take it for granted. Oh, it's marvelous. Merciful. We don't deserve God to come like that. But oh, when He comes, as I said a moment ago, His help is so adequate. It's manifold help. You got a heart cry tonight for God to do something? Don't miss God tonight. I don't, I don't, I don't beg people necessarily. I, I want to persuade as Paul said we persuade men, but I, I don't try to put any pressure. I don't believe in that. I try to make it clear and plain, and, and then that's up between you and Him. But oh, listen, there is something about coming forward. Just come and do business publicly. I don't understand all about it, but there's just something. It just seals that commitment. It makes it more real. You want to come do business with God? There are people here already. Don't miss God tonight. Would you stand with me with our heads bowed? Don't miss Him tonight. He's talking to a whole lot of us this evening. Father, in Jesus' name, seal this truth to our hearts. We pray you'll do it. Amen. The pastor's here.